And good morning. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. The passage we just read, that was just read to us, Matthew, uh, will also fit into what we're looking at this morning, but we'll spend our time specifically in Luke chapter 1, verses, we'll read verses 26 through 35. I'll give you a moment to find that, Luke 1. Begin reading in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. It's interesting here. If an angel appeared before me, I'd be troubled at the sight of the angel before me. She's not. She's troubled at what he says to her, of the kind and gracious things that he says to her. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, calling me a favored one. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Angels are created beings who possess great intelligence and moral judgment and who minister in heaven and on earth. Their primary responsibility is the worship of God. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, which brings this out, that one of their major responsibilities is the worship of God. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. These are angelic beings, and the description is a little scary, actually. Not the, the type of thing that we normally think of in terms of angelic beings. Four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night, they are worshiping God. Angels play a significant role in biblical history. They facilitated the the giving of the Mosaic Law. They protect God's people. They are executors of God's judgments. They are involved in the affairs of nations, and the list goes on. 
They also play a significant role in the life, played a significant role in the life and ministry of Jesus. They protected him from danger. They strengthened him when he was tested by Satan. They strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They opened his tomb and announced his resurrection. And you just see angelic beings involved in the life and ministry of Christ over and over. Angels also announced, as we know, the birth of Christ. God commissioned angels to speak to Mary and Joseph about the babe that Mary would bear. And he sent angels to the shepherds abiding in the fields. The angels of Christmas announced the good news of Christ, and we don't want to misunderstand their words. They have so much to say to us and to the world. It's funny how, how angels are... You'll see books about angels, conversations about angels. The, 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 um, the conversations are typically unbiblical. Uh, but the, the angels have a great deal to say. They had a great deal to say at the birth of our Savior, and we don't want to miss. You could actually, if you have a friend who, who likes to talk about angelic beings, you could take that person to these texts, and really give them the gospel from the words of the angels. We find, God, we find good news in the words of the angels, and we need to heed those words, and the world does as well. Let's pray, and we'll look at a few texts this morning. We thank you, Father, for the message of the angels, the messages, the various times that they announced the coming of our Savior. And there's so much... In Matthew 1 and in Luke 1, for us to glean. We pray that you'd help us to understand, maybe anew and afresh, their message, especially the message of the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. And even, Father, um, cause us to rethink our understanding of the gospel and how clear, how clearly they communicate and provide for us opportunities in this Christmas season to speak to others about Christ. We may know people who maybe will not listen to us, but they would, would listen to angels. And there's so much here for those outside of Christ to understand, and so much for us to remember. We thank you for this time. We thank you for our Savior. We love him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Four things this morning regarding the angels and their, their pronouncements. First of all, angels announce the manner of Jesus' arrival. We just saw this in Matthew, and we see it in, in Luke as well. Both Matthew and Luke record an angel's words of comfort relating to the Messiah's conception. In Matthew, the, the angel respo- responded to Joseph's justifiable fear. He's concerned that he would be marrying a woman who seems to have been unfaithful to him. And so an angel speaks to him and says, this is Luke, um, uh, Matthew one twenty. we just read this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke, notice verse 35, the angel answers Mary's question about her pregnancy. How could she, a virgin, become pregnant? Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The answer to the questions of both Joseph and Mary. Joseph's concerned about the situation and his reputation. 
Mary's concerned about how, how could this be? And the answer to both is the same. The Holy Spirit accomplished the miraculous conception of the Messiah in Mary's womb. And so Joseph should not be afraid to take her as his wife. And she should um, rest assured that this is God's doing, that her pregnancy is God's doing. Now, let's not interpret these passages as communicating some sort of divine and human relations. These passages suggest divine agency, not marital activity. The point being made is simply that by his power, the Holy Spirit accomplished conception in Mary's womb. The idea of the Holy Spirit overshadowing and covering something is not something new. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what do we have going on here in Genesis 1? We have um, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in a productive and creative way. And in a similar way, the Spirit of God hovered over Mary, as it were, and in a productive and creative way. And the product was, of course, God the Son. This amazing, above our abilities to grasp, miraculous conception of the Savior. Let's try to understand what's happening here. Normal human procreation produces a new person, right? Normal human procreation produces a new person. When the procreative act takes place, a new person comes into existence. Since God the Son already existed, all he needed was to take to himself an impersonal human nature. So, Mary provided the impersonal human nature, and the Holy Spirit provided the person of God the Son. Do we see that? You have God the Son, always existed, the second person of the Godhead, and you have Mary providing the human nature. So you have God the Son and divine nature. Mary provides this. And in the end, you have One person, two natures. God the Son, who is now human. One of us. The babe in the manger was fully human. He possessed fingers and toes. He cried and drooled. We have have some beautiful grandchildren. They cry and they drool. It's okay. We just wipe them and smile at them because they're so adorable. It's funny how drool from a baby is adorable, but not from, not from the rest of us. The baby Jesus needed to be fed and burped and changed, just like our little ones. I, love, I, don't, I don't mind the burping. I give my wife the feeding, then I take the burping because I think it's funny and cute. You know, burp. And then when it comes to the changing, I also pay, honey... Think in terms of the Savior, fully human. This babe was also fully God. It was perfect, sinless, 
infinitely good. And as he grew, he exhibited the attributes true of God alone. You can see his godness in everything about him. One author says this, and I find this really challenging. He says, the virgin birth posted a guard, uh, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. We do. We, we read these stories and we kind of rush past it. We know virgin conception and birth. We just move past it. None of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament. Blatantly supernatural. This is something God did. This is not the normal human uh, you know, normal human procreation taking place. This is blatantly supernatural, defying all rationalism, informing us that all that follows in the New Testament, in the Gospels regarding Jesus' life and ministry and death, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself. This virgin conception and birth, this is miraculous. This is the very beginning. And it tells us that everything else following regarding the life and ministry and death and resurrection of our Savior, this is all God and the God-man. And there will be miraculous, more miraculous things than this. Informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself. And that if we find it offensive, there's no point in proceeding further. If someone finds the virgin birth to be a little silly or crazy or offensive, why bother to keep reading? You can't deny the virgin conception and birth of Christ and then somehow keep reading the Gospels and extract from it. You've, you've missed something. You've missed something huge if you can do that. If our faith staggers at the virgin birth, what is it going to make of the feeding of the 5,000, the stilling of the tempest, the raising of Lazarus, the transfiguration, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This this event stands at the beginning of the New Testament and tells us, boy, what you're going to read from here on is the story of someone who is not normal. This is not just a man. This is the God-man. And so this, this miracle prepares us for all the rest. And if we're going to deny this one, why bother reading about the rest? Folks, we live in a day in which truth really doesn't matter much anymore. Our culture denies the very existence of truth. The evangelical church is minimizing and abandoning truth so quickly that soon the evangelical church may no longer be the evangelical church. One cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith is the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ. We can't allow that to be forgotten, marginalized, we can't allow it to be neglected or denied because without it, we don't have anything. Without this, this event we're talking about today, we don't have anything else. If this, is, if this didn't really happen, then there's no gospel. The angel secondly announced the glory of Jesus' person. Look at verse 32. 
Luke 1.32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Look at verse 35. And the angels answered her, The Spirit of uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the deity of Christ, the glory of His person, they make this very clear. Jesus claimed his deity in his, during his ministry. And his enemies, by the way, understood. You know, it's interesting. When you can bring your enemies to the, to the stand, as it were, and they will say things about you that you've said, when, when they admit it, it must be true. Notice, I'll just read to you a few texts. John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus is claiming his deity and his enemies understand it. And they want him dead because of it. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking. It's now commentary from John himself. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders understood what he was saying. He's saying of himself, he is God, and he must die, therefore. This is blasphemy. In John chapter 19, 6 and 7, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Jesus over and over communicated it, And you saw it in his ministry that this is no ordinary person. This is God in human flesh. And his enemies know what he was saying. So for those who will say, and there are some, many who will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. No. He was not just a good man and a good teacher. He was God in human flesh. And even his enemies recognized that that's what he was claiming. And they wanted him dead because of it. Now, this phraseology, um, Son of the Most High and Son of God, clearly communicates this idea. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that her offspring would be holy and would be called the Son of God. The reason the Spirit wrought this miracle in Mary was so that her firstborn would be the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph. So who is Jesus? Well, Gabriel makes it clear. He is God himself in human flesh. That's what Jesus is. Thirdly, angels announce the impeccability of Jesus. Theologians use that phrase, the impeccability of Christ, the impeccability of Jesus. It's not phraseology we use very often. How often have you used that? What they mean by that is that Jesus did not sin, and could not have sinned. It was impossible for him to sin. He was incapable of sinning because he was God in human flesh. He was not just a good person. He was God and and incapable, innately, it was impossible for him to, 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 to be involved in sin in any regard. 
Well, they, uh, the angel Gabriel says this. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, because this will take place, Mary, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. He will be holy, sinless, perfect, because of this virgin conception and birth. The inherent holiness of Christ was connected to his miraculous virgin conception and birth. If Jesus had been conceived through normal human procreation, then he would have been born a sinner, right? And if that, if that, takes, if that had taken place, then we have nothing. If he had been born a sinner like us, his death on the cross would be that would have been the death of an ordinary sinner, unable to grant forgiveness, uh, but because of Holy Spirit's ministry there, sin did not touch him or taint him, and his death on the cross provided, could provide, and did provide forgiveness. Now, let me just clear something up. Some may say, they may argue that if indeed Jesus is fully human, he must be a sinner. Because all human beings are sinners. I mean, I'm looking at a room full of sinners and you're looking at one. And there's no place you can go that you don't see someone who's a sinner. People are all sinners. We're all sinners. The Bible clearly says that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us who have somehow escaped it. You haven't. And I haven't. And so to be human means you are a sinner. Some would argue. Therefore, Jesus must have been, if he's human, if he was human, he must have been a sinner. No. We know this just by thinking about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were born, I'm sorry, created, why did I say that? Created holy, sinless, perfect. There was the fall. Eve's sin, Adam's sin, Adam's sin plunged the entire human race into sin, so now we're all sinners. But Adam and Eve were created sinless and holy, and they were fully human, right? They weren't something else. And so it's possible to be fully human and to be sinless, and if somehow you can, bu- you can bypass the, the uh, normal uh, human procreation, which Jesus did, You can be without sin, as Jesus was. So clearly, this is a sinless being. Lastly, the angels announced the purpose of Jesus' comings, his two comings. Why did Jesus come to earth? What did he offer? What does he offer to sinners? He came to save and to rule. He boiled down to those two things. He came to save and to rule. He offered forgiveness and a perfect kingdom. First of all, Jesus came to save sinners. Luke chapter 19. This is the consistent message of the New Testament, that Jesus came to this earth to forgive sinners and to save them from the divine wrath that they deserve. By the way, I hope we understand that. I don't mean to be um, non-complimentary. 
But we're all, we are all sinners. And one sin alone against an infinitely holy God is a sin of infinite heinousness, deserving of infinite punishment. And it's not that any of us have committed only one. We've all committed a Mount Everest of sins, a a mountain of sins in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts. Even those times that we are doing good, our, our motives are often wrong. According to the scriptures, all of our good is filthy rags. Isaiah is very clear about that. Apart from Christ, apart from a saving relationship with Christ and a relationship with God through that relationship with Christ, all that we do is for ourselves. None of it's for God's glory. And therefore, nothing we do or think is right. One theologian said, uh, if sin is blue, everything we do is, is a taint of blueness about it. Maybe black is the better word. If sin is black... Everything we do has a, sin, a taint of blackness about it, even the good things. So why did Jesus come? Well, first of all, he came to provide a way of forgiveness for sinners, for me and for you. And for our neighbors and our coworkers, for people we know and love, for people we know and don't love, for everyone in our sphere of influence. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He's not talking about some, someone lost in the woods. He's talking about someone spiritually lost. Christ came, he says of himself, to seek and to save those, those who are lost. Lost in sin. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. He gave himself for us to redeem us, to pay the price for our sin. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. You know, there, there just aren't. I learned this growing up. Many, Maybe most of us did. There are many roads to heaven. Just get on one of those roads and you'll be there. You'll go to heaven when you die. The Bible just doesn't teach that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's not religion or human activity or or whatever it would be. Uh, 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 Being a good person, a moral person, there aren't many doors. It's Christ alone. And Acts says the same thing. And there is salvation in no one else but Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which uh, we must be saved. There aren't many ways. There's one way, and it's Christ. And let me encourage you, if you're here and you have not, maybe you're thinking, it's uh, I've got another way. Or maybe it's, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to church, and I'm trying to do the right things. All those ands demonstrate that you don't really understand the gospel. Because you can't add to Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. The ands come afterward. I trusted Christ 
and I'm trying now to please him in my daily life by doing things that the scriptures speak of. But there is no end to the real gospel. It's Christ and Christ alone. Now, before Jesus said anything about him coming to save sinners, and before the Apostle Paul or any of the other apostles spoke of it, the angels had their turn. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. So before Jesus said anything about himself, before the apostles spoke of Jesus as the Savior, the angels had their turn. Luke 1, 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means Savior. Look, at, look over to chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Just a, probably a page turnover. This is the angel speaking to the shepherds now. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What is the reason for great joy? We're all sinners. And there's a Savior now. Turn, turn over to Matthew chapter 1 for just a moment. Because if, if, if nothing's been clear thus far about this, Matthew certainly is. Matthew one twenty one. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, meaning Savior, of course. But notice, here's the definition of Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Why would you name him that? Because he will save his people from their sins. There's the definition of the word, the name Jesus. Why would you call? Why don't you call him George, Bill, Benjamin, some Jewish name, Benjamin? Why would you call him Jesus? Because he is the one who will save his people from their sins. The word "save" there is the kind of the standard Greek word for deliver. It can speak of saving someone physically, delivering them from a physical struggle or problem. It also can speak of delivering from from spiritual struggle or problem. That's the idea here. Spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin is the idea. Now notice he says in verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Probably the reference there, of course, is to Israel, the Jews, how do, we, how do we fit in here? Well, the rest of the New Testament, we find clearly that God's plan included the saving of the Gentiles as well. So it's not just the Jews, Israel, but Christ's saving work was for us as well. Let me just demonstrate that. Uh, don't turn there, but uh, John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of this fact. That his saving work is not just for the Jews, but also for us, the Gentiles. So John 10, he speaks of us as the other sheep. 
Okay? John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me. I know my sheep, my, my people, my children. Just as the Father knows me, I and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He's speaking there, apparently, in the text, of Israel. I lay my life down for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning Israel. I have other sheep that are, these are not Jews. I have other sheep. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The, the flock there, he's speaking of the church. These are my sheep, Israel. But there, I've got other sheep as well. And in the end, there'll be one flock, both groups, Jews and Gentiles, together in one flock, and I am the one shepherd. So the saving work of our Savior was not just intended for Israel, but for me and for you, for the Gentiles. You know, the message of Christmas is the message of the babe in the manger, right? But the message of Christmas is really the message of the babe in the manger who is the Savior of the world. It's, it's the babe in the manger that is focused on. If there is any re- religiousness to what the world is doing, it's the babe in the manger. I mean, there's Rudolph, and there's Frosty, and these other distracting things. But any, any Christianity uh, in our world, and it's about the babe in the manger. And this beautiful scene of Mary and Joseph and a, a cow and a goat, uh, you know, and the star, and this little baby and this very rustic, smelly cave or barn and so forth. That's the scene. That's not the real scene. It's, according to the angels, it's the message of the babe who is someone specific, who is God in human flesh, and who is the Savior. And when you divorce the Savior part from this scene, we've completely missed Christmas. The angel's very clear. Gabriel's very clear. And the angel in Matthew is very clear. He will save his people from their sins. That's part of the angelic proclamation. It's not something that happens later. Paul starts talking about it or Jesus speaks of it. No, from the very beginning, this, this little one is not no ordinary little one. He's the Savior. We also see that Jesus will come again to rule from David's throne. Now let me read to you a portion of 2 Samuel that speaks of the future kingdom, the millennial kingdom, which ushers in the eternal kingdom, which we speak of as heaven. So 2 Samuel, this is God speaking to the prophet Nathan regarding what he should tell David. God told the prophet Nathan, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, tell David this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, you were a shepherd, I took you from that, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. You'll define that in a moment. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, speaking of Solomon, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be with him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's this promise to David, I will establish your house. I will establish a kingdom. And a a Davidite, a Davidic king, will sit on this throne forever. And speaking then of this thousand-year kingdom, the millennium we speak of, that the New Testament describes, but with, which ushers in the eternal kingdom. Now, early on the scene, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kingdom is he talking about? The Davidic kingdom, this eternal kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's here. I am the king and I'm here to establish the kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. Now look at verse 32 and 33 of Luke 1. Going back to Luke. So you have John the Baptist, you have Jesus. But before John the Baptist existed, before he was born, and before Jesus was born, before they said anything, here's the angel Gabriel. Luke 1, 32 and 33. He, speaking of Christ, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his king, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus came to save, and he came to rule. In his first coming, in the impeccable wisdom of God, the amazing wisdom of God, Israel rejected him. In the plan of God, Israel, his people, rejected him. The Jews and the Romans brutally murdered him. And what did that accomplish? His job as Savior, right? God used the wickedness of the human race. And by the way, as quickly as we may blame the Israel and the Romans, if you and I had been there, sinners that we are, we would probably would have been screaming out, crucify him, crucify him, just as they did. I wish I could say I'm, I'm better than they were and that I would never have done such a thing. I wish I could say that. But in the plan of God, the one who's coming as Savior and King, this event, the brutal murder of Christ, 
accomplish the first, he is the Savior. And then postponed the second, him being king, until the future. He's going to come again. It's a two-part coming, rapture, and then coming again to rule and to reign. And he will come again, ultimately, to sit on David's throne. And that thousand-year kingdom will usher in eternity, heaven. And he will rule and reign perfectly. It's amazing when you look at these angelic beings, how much they said that we tend to just kind of read past. Who is this one? He's God in human flesh. He is the one who came to save. This babe, this little cute babe, drooling and in the manger and all the rest. He came to save. And he came to establish this kingdom that hasn't been established yet. This is future. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you really have grasped the message of the angels, who Jesus is, what he has done and why he did it, let me challenge you to just think this through. It's easy to get caught up in Christianity as our culture communicates it. It's easy to get caught up in the things of Christmas as we see you know, on TV and in the commercials and in the stores and all the rest. But have we really actually missed the message of the angels? Ask yourself, have I really trusted Jesus Christ alone and not Jesus Christ plus a bunch of other things? Have I trusted him alone? Because apparently, even the angels were saying, he's the only one. Forgiveness is only through him. When I think of eternity, when I think of heaven, do I think in terms of this is what Jesus Christ will establish and I want to be part of that? Or am I so so focused on this life that I don't even think about those things? Let me encourage you not to miss the message of the angels today. And let me encourage you too, as you have opportunity to speak to others in your sphere of influence who are thinking about Christmas. And you could turn them to these texts and say, you know, I just realized how much the angels say. Let's look at that. Have you thought about this? And you'll have an opportunity to give the gospel to someone who needs Christ desperately. Thank you, Father, for the clear message of these angelic beings. To Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds in the fields. We confess that we sometimes miss the nuances of their message. We sometimes miss the, the actual words, what they're saying. We just read past it. And it's a lovely story. And we think in terms of that. But we sometimes have missed what they have said. Father, if there are any here today who, have, who realized, I think I've missed some of this. And I'm not sure I've actually trusted the Christ as The New Testament says I must do. Humble them, Father. Help them to understand these things and ultimately to run to Christ for forgiveness because he is the only one who can provide it. There aren't many ways. There's one. It's faith alone in Christ alone. And Father, help us, each one of us, to look forward to the day when we will be with Jesus as he is ruling and reigning perfectly. Thank you for our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.